Hi, my name is Brenda Yannick, and I am the founder and uh, principal advisor to Clinical Transformation Partners, which is a consultancy in this field. And I've been given the privilege of hosting this panel session today. The topic is sample management as a career, not a job. I'd like to welcome two of my esteemed colleagues to the stage here. First, we have Sue Crimmin, who has had a storied career in sample management at GSK and will be entering 2020 as an SLS board member. Congratulations. And also Michelle Galante, who's had a storied career at BMS and now has been at Evotech for three years. So welcome, Michelle. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to start off with a question and then we'll start taking questions from the audience. So ladies, are you ready? In what field did you start your career and how did you become part of a sample management group? Who would like to start? Okay. Please. Is the, is the mic on? Hi. Good afternoon, everyone. Um, I feel like I'm on a talk show here with this stool, but you know, so if I fall off, you know. Yeah. So I started my career as a biochemist and geneticist and actually worked first as an enzymologist and then moved into leading a group on assay development and screening at uh, what was Glaxo. And during that time, I developed a real passion for automation. And we brought in the first screening robot at the time. And I was talking with Rose about them. They were called Robocons and uh, they worked for a little while, didn't they? But yeah, they weren't that great. <laughs> um, but because of that, I developed a real passion for automation. So when Glaxo at the time were thinking about, you know, high throughput screening and, and how do you do that? They wanted someone that was interested in automation. And that's basically how I became involved with sample management. So we developed the first automated liquid store, um, I think in pharma, or it was probably at the same time as Pfizer, but, um, and we built a sample collection, um, which didn't exist before then. So that's how I started. Fantastic. So I actually started out as a temp <laughs> working in compound management. Um, and I went through many years at BMS um, from, you know, having a very small closet worth of, you know, samples, archive, uh, bottles in uh, old wooden boxes wow. um, in a very small area um, to going through the um, development of an entire building of a wing for automated stores to fit into um, and just the complete metamorphosis of, you know, a small scale weighing samples on a, you know, counter with, you know, by hand into a plate to full scale automation. Um, and as you mentioned along the way, you, you know, you find out what you like and what you don't like. And automation was always something that interested me as well as the software pieces um, and how to keep improving the process as we went along. And I'm going to ask a quick follow on how do you compare um, working in this field in a pharma company versus, for example, Evotech? Are there, are there differences or are they sa the same? There are definitely differences. The processes are similar. The workflows are very similar. Um, but the... Um, <laughs> it's, well, so the thing, that's what I thought about, actually. the You have customers no matter what, right? I mean, I just happen to have many different customers who work with different companies. Um, when we were in Big Pharma, I had, you know, multiple customers from just different groups within that company. So it's definitely different, but not necessarily in terms of, um, you know, the workflows or the actual career path, if you will. I don't, well, the career path is actually different, I think, as well, too, because it's just the type of opportunities that are available in a larger company um, versus, you know, I think it's more internal facing, you know, obviously a lot of the customer interactions and some of those skills, a lot of project management comes into it more in terms of a CRO. And so those kind of things are different. Okay. 
And others, questions from the audience? <laughs> Thanks, Brenda. Um, can you talk about uh, that point of transition when you started thinking about it as a career and not as a job? And also maybe for Sue, was there a difference in thinking as you started out this career to the later stages of your career? So I, th I think the first part of the question, Rose, was around what was the transition? Well, to me, it was always a career, regardless of what, what I worked in. So, you know, I approached it very much that um, working, whether you're working in asset development or screening or IT, you know, you're very vested in the organization. You're very vested in what a company like GSK or Pfizer are doing in, in terms of uh, creating innovative medicines for patients. So I have to say, you know, throughout my career, whether it's been in sample management or not, it's been very much a career. Um, but one of the things that when I first transitioned into sample management, um, it was an organization that wasn't robust, that had a large number of um, temporary workers rather than permanent. Uh, it wasn't viewed as a, a prestige role within the organization. And I think, you know, over the years... We've managed to collectively, as a community, we've managed to turn that around um, where it is well recognized now as a profession that people are respected within their relative, their appropriate organizations for the role that they do and the importance that sample management has in the whole process. Because quite frankly, if the sample isn't right, then everything downstream is wrong. So, um, you know, I think collectively as a group, we should be very proud that we've moved sample management to that professional level. I think for me, it was when we, when I saw the company investing, as Sue said, you know, when they were making the investment in the infrastructure, when they were building the building and, you know, getting all the automation in, um, when they were converting temps into permanent workers, when they were saying as a company, you know, this is something that's important to us. This is something we're going to invest in. And I think even over time, um, the more that that happened. There were several different transition points where it was very obvious that, you know, there was a commitment. Um, as you say, in some ways, it still wasn't necessarily highly esteemed. And that definitely has changed. I, I've seen it in, you know, the most recent years. Um, <clears throat> but even that, like the commitment from the leadership um, to kind of see that, you know, this wasn't just going to be something that was ill-regarded or was just a job to get to the next stepping stone. You know, if you think about the, uh, sample management, you know, the, the, the skill set and the disciplines that people have to have is, is, is so diverse. And, um, you know, if you think about it, automation, IT, logistics, compliance, you know, basically sample management is a great training ground for anybody. And then they build up these skills, which are really transferable. So whether you stay in sample management or whether you use that as a sounding board for somewhere else within an organization or a different company, I would say to young people that the training in sample management that you get is really second to none. And actually, I'm going to uh, agree with you here, having started out in biobanking and uh, genetics in the lab and then biobanking. Um, with through biobanking and then uh, working in clinical specimen management, I learned so much about clinical protocols, consent language, consent structure. That part of my consultancy is based on the fact that I learned all of those different skills. So I could, uh, if you had told me years and years ago that uh, when I was biobanking that I would be consulting on consent language for major companies, I wouldn't have thought that. But it gives you this incredible range of skills. So I would agree. <laughs> 
So I work in compound management with Sue. And I've got two, two things. Um, I give lots of tours for new students coming around. So they're like fresh graduates and they're just starting their degree. And they've never heard of compound management. So I always like to point out to them how much IT is involved, how much automation is involved, how much science is involved, and how much compliance is involved. And they go away inspired actually to actually want to come into compound management, which I think is fantastic. Because when I started, it was, it was like Sue said, you know, it, it, we were the bottom feeders. And now we, that's what we considered, you know, and anything was wrong, it was always our fault. Um, and then it's turned around, we're now the engine that drives the discovery in a GSK. Um, so that's one thing that I think has changed. And the other thing that's coming really important now, as Sue mentioned, is the compliance angle. So we've all got our automation, we've got our IT, but now we all need to be compliance experts. And I think that's a huge area where people here can actually grow. And I'm looking forward to tomorrow's talks all about compliance to see how that's going to take off in the area. Thank you. Um, so you mentioned a lot of different components that kind of go into uh, sample management and tracking. What would you say if you had to like pick one thing that if you didn't have it would completely cause it to fail? Like what would be the most important thing to succeeding in sample management? So the question was, what's the most important thing to succeeding in sample management? For me, I think it's attention to detail. My husband would say I have no attention to detail, but there you go. <laughs> I rely on other people to have attention to detail. Um, I think it's, uh, it's around having a, no one particular discipline, but it's about having an energy and passion for what you do and an enthusiasm for it. Um, you know, it's basically... Throughout my career, it's not been a job. It's been something that I've, you know, enjoyed going into work. And I think if if you have that in your role, you know, it, that's great. Um, and at the point where you don't enjoy it, you should probably go and, and try something else. And may I make a suggestion that um, when you go to speak, that you introduce yourself so people can know who you are. Most of the people know me. Snehal Bhatt from GlaxoSmithKline. And I work for... Um for so. so the question that you ask is one thing you need to pick one word. So I would say connector. You need to connect IT to your process. You connect to uh, um, automation, science, everything you need to connect. There is no specific, until now, there wasn't any specific uh, discipline that you go on and learn about the compound management, right? You need to connect with your customer. You need to connect with the vendor. You need to, you are in a center. So you, you need to have a collaborative nature to connect everyone to make the things happen. That's my two cents. Thank you. Um, what would you say is the biggest challenge with sample management in the CRO model when you don't own all of the process? There are a lot of different challenges with that, but I think it's not so much about not owning the sample because we're stewards for the sample. Um, you know, no matter what, we treat them as if they were ours. A lot of times it's aligning expectations with reality. I think when somebody can come down the hallway in a large pharma and they can see the operations and they can see how it works. I mean, we have people come and see how we work, but it's not the same as kind of on a daily basis or more frequent touch points. Um, so I think it's just trying to make sure that, you know, we get that communication back and forth going properly to align expectations with reality and what's possible and what is actually going to make the customer happy in the end. I can't, I can't comment from the CRO point of view, but from a uh, the partner working with a CRO, I think the, the key is establishing a, a really good working relationship built on trust. Um, and if you can do that, then basically it's just an extension of your own organization, you know, because you work to the same standards and the quality. Um, and if you can get that relationship, then it's win-win for both organizations. 
The only other thing I think I would add too is that, um, you know, some partnerships go really, really well and that's fine. And as, as Sue said, you know, you build trust and, that, and that's fine. I think there are some um, relationships that start out where, you know, there is kind of this older mindset in some cases where, you know, anything that goes wrong is compound, man- compound management's fault. And I think that I have noticed as a CRO, people who have that mindset, the trust is a lot harder to build and um, it's it's exponentially um, greater in those cases. And so building that trust is harder when you don't have people who can come and just see what you do. Um, I think in previous cases I've had, you know, at times I've seen management or um, different departments kind of say, okay, you think you can do this better than we do or you think we're doing it wrong? Come down and show us what you want us to do. Um, and that's kind of enabled the conversation to enlighten them really about all the complications that are involved. And as a CRO, that's really just not as possible. Hi, my name is uh, Len Glass. I work for a small to medium-sized pharma company outside of uh, Delaware called Insight. Um, so I've worked for a couple different organizations and they all seem to have varying degrees of appreciation for compound management. I've seen it very, very highly regarded and not so much. Um, if you're, it, seems to, it seems to scale maybe with company size. I think larger companies kind of have woken up to the idea that it's maybe important. So if you're in a position where your company is still yet to arrive at that conclusion that compound management matters, how do you fight that battle you know, are there any strategies to making them wake up and, and realize that this, uh, like you said, does affect all the downstream processes and, you know, it, it matters in the grand scheme of things? That's a hard one. It is a hard, <laughs> that's a hard one. It's a great question, actually. So I've always thought that um, how a, an organization is perceived really comes down from the leadership. And if you have someone who's a strong proponent and advocate and that, you know, they are, you know, leading the way, basically then, you know, that that builds respect and support within an organization. And I've seen in big pharma where someone in sample management hasn't had that level of leadership and they haven't been respected. So, it, you know, I do think it depends on the person and the individuals that are in the organization. Um, so my advice would be, is there someone in your organization that you can use as, to help you champion what you do that can illustrate what are the issues if things go wrong? Find someone that's going to help you, you know, champion that within your organization. Yeah, I think that's probably about the best advice. <laughs> Leadership at all levels, you know, um, and, and getting the buy-in, I think. Also, you know, the more you try to educate, the more you try to illustrate the processes or, you know, give them the whys, I think that helps as well. Um, I think sometimes when, you know, we have to, you know, nobody ever wants to hear no or be told that they can't do something or, you know, but there have been cases I think where, you know, in trying to streamline processes and, you know, trying to show the win-win, right? There are times where I've had to push back and say, you know, no, we can't do this in every form that you want because if we do, then your turnaround time is going to suffer. And so just kind of illustrating those whys. On a lighter note, I think once you've convinced the organization that investment in sample management is, is you know, important and you go ahead, You'll be absolutely amazed. You know, once you have that cool infrastructure in place, that cool automation, you have kings, you have queens, you have heads of state. They troll them around to visit you. You know, you're on show 24-7 and and you become a real focal point. If you look at GSK videos, our robots feature in so many of those, you know, uh, and, and I'm sure Rose is nodding. I'm sure it's the same with Pfizer. I'm sure it's the same with Merck. You know, so, you know, once you, that you can get people to make that step change investment in the, in the technology, then they'll use you as well to showcase how, how good the science is as well. Yeah. Just, just to add to, to what Sue and Michelle said, I think in addition to getting that sponsorship from 
upper management, it's great if you can find one of your customers who's willing to be a champion and say, you know, these guys really helped me out. It saved me time. It saved me buying this equipment myself, whatever. Um, I, I found that to be quite useful. And if you can find one of those that's well-connected with somebody who's up higher, <laughs> even better. <laughs> right, so Greg Wendell from Novartis, something which a manager of mine taught me or, or woke me up to is don't make it look too easy. We as compound managers want to say, give me the order, I got it, you'll have your plate tomorrow. And we make it look easy. And they don't see how hard it is that we actually work and how hard the science is. You know, do the presentations within the group. Hey, here's how I do what I do. And this is all the thought that goes into it. So they really see what it is you do, and it doesn't look too easy. And then they start to appreciate it. It really did make a change for some of the people and how they looked at us. I think that's a really good point. I had a, a manager who used to say, you know, don't suffer in silence. Somehow, compound management always gets it done. No matter how much the demand increases, no matter what happens, we find a way to make it happen. And as long as you keep doing that, you don't get the investment that's often needed. You can't just keep doing more and doing more and doing more because at some point you're going to have burnout. You're going to have a breaking point where you can't keep doing it. Um, and if you, you know, kind of back off before that point, and like you said, let them know how hard this really is. Like, yes, we're getting it done, but it's not sustainable. I was just going to add one more thing too. I mean, I think getting the champions, like someone who's supportive, obviously that's the first step, but I've experienced in the past where if you can also identify somebody who is kind of a tough cookie and you can maybe try to work with them and understand why they are withholding or why they're hesitant and maybe you can win them over to your side and those people will turn into the potentially the greatest advocates that you ever have. Um, and I think, but at the same time, you can't focus so much on the detractors. Um, it's easy to fall into that trap and think about all the good things that you are doing and all the people that you are supporting. And if there's a few naysayers, I mean, they're in every crowd, regardless of the size of the organization. So um, I, yeah, and we can talk about protein sample management and all. <laughs> I can give you some some uh, things about that, about the the unwillingness of people to, to give those types of samples over. So um, yeah, it's happening everywhere. And I think we, I'm also thankful for the support of the, the community that we have here because it lifts you up when you come to things like this to realize that we are all dealing with the same type of challenges regardless of the size. It might be just differently scaled. So Thank you. So my name is Tyrell Harris. I've been working in compound management for the past five months. So you know I haven't been here so long. But I did want to know, um, what would you give, like what advice would you give to somebody who just started working in compound management in order to help grow their career? I know you said follow your interests. Your interest was automation. But I was just wondering if there was like a I guess like a better idea, like how you moved up a little bit. I think it has to do with, you know, it's it's about attitude, right? Make sure that you're engaging and having those conversations um, with management about what you like and what you don't like. Um, make sure that you're taking opportunities when they're given. You know, obviously you're here, so that's a good sign. <laughs> um, go to the conferences when it's possible and when they're available. And really just be engaged. Because I, I think, you know, honestly, to me, the biggest difference a lot of times between a job and a career is how invested you are in it. Um, and so the more that you show interest and show initiative and get out there, I think, honestly, that's how I managed to do, you know, move, keep moving forward. Because every time I started to get bored or complacent, because a lot of the work is sometimes, you know, monotonous, tedious. And every time I felt myself kind of slipping into a rut where I was like, I don't really want to go to work today. I would look at the situation and see, you know, what opportunities there were and try and figure out what the next thing that I wanted or that I would be good at was. So um, in, I'd say more, more recently than early days, I've really got involved in, in people development. Uh, it's a real passion for me. And so my advice to, to you starting out is 
constantly look at your own development plan. Don't sit back and expect others to do it for you. However, there are always, whether you're a small company or a large company, Use the resources around you. Find yourself a coach. Find yourself a mentor. It could be, you know, if you can't find somebody within your own company, there's 150 people in this room, you know, and I'm sure most of us here would be happy to coach you, to be a mentor to you, um, take advantage of any courses that are relevant, training in in disciplines that will be transferable, Lean Six Sigma, uh, liquid handling technology, um, uh, writing automation scripts, basically try and build your CV and use the people around you and the resources networking to do that. So don't be complacent. It's, it, you know, people are quite, I think, um, when you start a career that, you know, some people are just not savvy about how I, I develop myself and what, you know, and are f- afraid to ask people to help. So reach out and, you know, um, one of the things that I stood for when, you know, I was approached about uh, being on the SLAS board was I want to, um, in the time I'm going to be involved, is to work on career growth for uh, people across SLAS and how we can encourage young people to grow and develop their careers within the SLAS community. So, you know, let's talk afterwards. It's for the past. So uh, my name is Marta Castiano and I'm from Cornell University um, and I run the Biobank um, and it was actually to add to the previous um, discussion that we were having on how to engage with the stakeholders. And what I found that is very um, helpful for us is the any success that the sample management side has, um, we credit the leadership and any failure is mine. So um, <laughs> I take full responsibility for the failures and I will... Um, or any challenges that we have, and we pass on the success to leadership and that engages them and makes them feel like this is a program that they want to support. So that's been very helpful for us. We have time for one more question. My name is Bill Gannon, uh, GSK. I've worked with Sue for quite a number of years. I essentially, my whole career has been in sample management in one way or another. Um, so I do have a question, but I also have some commentary to the two uh, gentlemen. Uh, for the young gentleman who's only been in it for five months, build relationships. That's the big thing is building relationships. And for you, sir, it goes along that way too. If you're able to build those relationships and build those trusts, it will essentially grow. And that's one of the things that uh, Sue was able to help us with. My big question for Sue and for Michelle is, what was the biggest hurdle you each had to overcome in your careers? I think for me in my career, it was kind of getting out of my own way. Um, at certain points, I think there were opportunities, but if I couldn't see them, um, I would, you know, as I mentioned before, if you're not feeling engaged, if you're not feeling um, challenged, if you're, you know, just doing the same thing every day and you're bored, um, it was could easily have gone the other way where I just said, okay, this isn't for me and I'm out of here. And so I think getting to a point where I had, like Sue said, I had a really good mentor um, after that. I had some really good management. Um, and even, you know, before that, just actually looking at yourself and seeing, making it visible the or making yourself aware um, of the things that you, like at one point I finally took stock of all the different skills that I had developed over my time in compound management and realized that I really am growing and this is good, but you know, how can I now translate those and move them to the next level? How do I develop? So keeping track of my own development plan, I was not very good at that for a long time. Um, and 
that almost derailed my career. So that's a that's a tough one, Bill. <laughs> um, biggest challenges, I think, challenges and opportunities because I always like to look at them side by side. So I think the biggest decision or tipping point for me was around moving countries, moving from the UK to Spain and then moving from Spain to the US and, you know, making the difficult decision to move my family and the great support that I had from my husband to do that. And it turned into probably the best opportunities that that I had. Um, So, you know, challenges and opportunities. I think the continual challenge within our organisation and for me was around, you know, getting support for infrastructure investment was pretty okay and easy when money was plentiful. But in recent years, it's been really tough. So, you know, again, a piece of advice for people um, working in this area, if you want to get support for infrastructure and development that you think is critical for your business, then really work on building cases for return on investment. Talk to people that do that, you know, routinely and, um, you know, build some good models and, and cases to take to your management. But I found it very tough, and I think most people have to to get the um, infrastructure and support that they need over the last few years because money is getting quite tight. <laughs> well, for some some companies, anyway. All right. Well, we're we've come to the end of the session, so thank you, um, Sue and Michelle, and appreciate all of your uh, input. 